Welcome to the Homeopathy for Mommies radio show. Your host, Sue Meyer, is a Catholic wife and homeschool mom of 11. She shares her knowledge of the study of natural alternative medicine with you. While this show is not intended to diagnose or name any disease, through her experience, Sue will share helpful information to help you further your study into the amazing world of homeopathy. And now, here's your host, Sue Meyer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Homeopathy for Mommies. I'm Sue Meyer, and today we have a very, very special guest. Her name is Julie, and she's a crunchy legal lady. And so with no further ado, I'm going to actually turn this podcast interview over to Joy and Julie, because Joy is the one that, that has brought her on board because she's been following Julie and and she's just like, we, we have to have a podcast with her. <laughs> so I'm just good. I'm actually going to listen to this interview and I'm going to enjoy myself. <laughs> so here we are, Joy and Julie. Take us away. OK, Julie, I found you on Instagram and then. Funny enough, you emailed not too long after that, Sue. So um, you are the crunchy legal lady on Instagram, and it says that you are making the law simple for holistic families, which is all of us listening for sure. Um, can you tell us about how you got started with your crunchy legal lady um, profile and um, just a little bit of your background? Yeah, I would love to. And first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. I feel so honored and I am a big fan of homeopathy. So I'm happy to be able to have this discussion with you. I started my journey uh, to becoming the country legal lady, as most people do uh, as a young mother. I started my uh, career in research. Everybody in my family has some kind of medical background. And I thought, you know, I would like to go into research and that would be kind of my uh, contribution. Most of the research that I did was more market research, but I ended up working for a really big company and doing research consulting for them for high touch clients like Harvard and Yale and Stanford, uh, people like that. And I also worked with some tech giants and my job was to make sure that their research was done well and that it was done feasibly and how feasible is this? Can we get people on board? And I was doing a lot of that research fulfilling process while consulting on, you know, this study looks good, this study doesn't look good and um, speaking with them. And it was during that time working for this company and having all these clients that I, you know, I think I kind of went into research with uh, a rose colored glass that things would be done well and be done right in the way that they're supposed to be done via the scientific method. And I found that um, many of our clients would ask me to do things and just expect them to be done. Like they would say things like, well, we need this result. Well, that doesn't, that's not the way that the scientific method is supposed to work. And I would go to my manager and talk to him about these things. And, you know, his response was like, no, this is just the way that it's done. And the truth is that it's really hard to do research correctly. And there are some things that, you know, I think many people in the industry would say cannot be overcome, but that really are a detriment to scientific research. 
And, you know, in place of being able to do these things, we substitute it with money and um, a lot of people's time. And I just started to feel unethical. And it's not that the company I was working for was particularly unethical per se. You know, they are a normal company in the industry. It doesn't really matter where you go. You can go to all different kinds of companies to do this research. And you're always kind of going to end up with these uh, difficulties. And, you know, we've kind of talked ourselves into the fact that, like, this is just the way that it is. You know, these are the people paying for the study. And, you know, we need to make the study the way that they want it to be. Or there's just no other way to do it. Or it's too difficult. So, you know, I I felt like this is kind of not what I signed up for after working there for um, a couple years. And then I had my first son that kind of opened my eyes, you know, going through the birthing process. And I did do hypnobirthing, but I, I didn't do a, a home birth. I did a, a hospital birth, but even with my hypnobirthing, you know, my experience was very eye opening. And I think it's that way for most young moms who kind of come into the crunchy world is you realize, you know, these things are not right. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And but the system kind of like pushes on you. And um, after that, I had an experience at the company that I felt was completely unethical with some results having been um, forged. Um, They were completely faked. And the person responsible was not let go. They weren't fired. Um, I don't know, you know, if the company... Uh, really disciplined them or even told the people we were working for about it or if they just like fixed it but I just said you know that's it for me you know I'm done I'm walking away and with that I kind of had a renewed vigor to figure out what's true you know what's real what's true Uh, we say we do all this research but is this research really you know real is it upstanding And so I started going on to the FDA website and the CDC website and all these different places and reading their studies and reading their claims and really trying to match up, you know, what is true and what's not. And that's when I kind of started to get into herbalism and homeopathy and these other things that I I had always, you know, when I was younger, because I was raised in a very medical family, had looked at as kind of woo woo and, you know, weird and things like that. But I you know, started to realize, you know, these things really do work, you know, this stuff works. And there is evidence out there to support these kinds of things where there's shaky evidence to support other things that we use every day. I became extremely um, interested in toxins. And that just led me to, you know, the law, I uh, worked in the research sphere for about seven years. And I finally felt really called to go to law school and became very passionate about protecting, you know, people who want to live this lifestyle and, you know, really helping to make these pharmaceutical companies and these agencies accountable for what they're doing and, you know, wanting to help crunchy people. So that's a little bit about my journey to becoming the crunchy legal lady. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. (laughs) You have done a lot for such a young thing. (laughs) That's all I've got to say. I'm really proud of you. It's so funny because when you were saying how, when you said, that's it, I'm walking away. 
I, I can remember there was a point in my life. And, and I think many, many people have the same experiences that when you do that and you walk away and you, you turn to the path that you know you're supposed to be on, it's like God blesses you so much and with so many graces that you never would have had had you not turned and, you know, walked away. So, oh, I'm really proud of you. That's great. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, Joy, I'm going to let you continue with this this interview. This is so amazing. Julie, you're you're so <laughs> you're so you're so amazing. So thank you um, from all of us out here for for caring because it, it's exciting that you know a lot of us you know I was okay I never I didn't have any um, education beyond high school and so to meet someone who is a mother and that actually has education under her belt it's like we thank you so much because many of us would love to do what you, what you have the ingenuity to do. And um, we, we thank you very much. Joy? So it's interesting you talked about birth because I know we have a, a lot of moms who do home birth and, you know, end up in the hospital um, and have to deal with the freedom to say no to certain procedures, the freedom to say, um, you know, hospital, what kind of rights do they have to say, no, I don't want that done um, for me or for my baby, things like that. So I don't know if you have any kind of um, tips or advice uh, around that. Yeah, definitely. Um, this is a, a area of the law I'm very passionate about and something I'm very passionate about because I'm also a home birth mom. I have three kids currently and um, my first was born in a hospital, but the other two were born, born at home and my third was actually um, a free birth. So I did an unassisted birth at home with her. Yeah, so that was um, amazing. So obviously, I really care about your right to birth how you want. And uh, one thing as far as tips in this area, well, one thing to know, I think, is every state is different as far as whether or not uh, home birth is regulated. And I use that word specifically because there are states, you know, people will say, oh, well, home birth is not legal in, um, let's just take somewhere like Nebraska, like home birth's not legal here. So I can't, I can't have a home birth. Well, actually what's going on is that home birth, it's not that home birth is illegal is it's that home birth is not regulated, which means that there are not any licensed midwives or people who are licensed and able to come to a birth at home in in that area but that doesn't mean that you cannot you know privately in your own home birth now you know that decision really comes down to whether or not you are willing and and you want to take the benefits or the risks associated with you know using a provider who is not licensed right that's an option or you want to do it yourself kind of like i did an unassisted birth um, that is up to you. Obviously, there's not going to be someone who's who's licensed in those states, but that doesn't mean that you cannot birth at home. So I think that's one thing to make clear is that it's just is home birth regulated or is it not regulated? And in many states, it is regulated. And that means that licensed midwives are available. But in some states, it is not regulated. But that doesn't take away your right to birth at home um, if you choose to use unlicensed practitioners or want to do it privately. So that's the first thing. And then uh, I would say, you know, if you are going to birth in a hospital 
or if you end up having, you know, any kind of experience with a hospital in, in your birthing experience, it is also always good to go in with a plan. I mean, most birth practitioners talk about this, you should have a birth plan, but it's important because you can use that plan to become a contract. And most people don't understand that. And, um, you know, you have the ability when you go in there to say, hey, this is what I'm agreeing to. And I want you to look at this doctor, you know, whoever the doctor is, I want you to look at this, I want you to put it in my medical record And I want you, you can even ask them, I want you to sign this, that you've seen this, right? Because we all have the ability to contract. Everybody does. It's a right. It's actually a constitutional right. Everybody has a constitutional right to write contracts. You don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to be anybody special. You can say, hey, these are the terms of my agreement. And this is what I'm coming in here. Now, does that guarantee that the hospital will sign it? No. You know, the doctor may not sign it, the nurse may not choose to sign it, or they may fight you on putting it in your medical record. But you need to make sure that if you are interacting with the hospital, that things are being recorded. And you can, if they will not put it on record, then you make your own record. You can do that by text, you can do that by calls, you can do that Um, by recording. You can also do that by writing an email to yourself or to others or to that doctor to explain, hey, this was my understanding of what happened. This is my understanding. And, you know, most people are documenting their births anyway. So, you know, why not take some videos? Why not, you know, videos of yourself saying, hey, this is what happened so far. Maybe whoever your, your husband or your birth partner is in there can, you know, make these notes for you. So that's uh, the second thing is make a record, bring your plan and and have them put it in the medical record that they've at least seen it. Even if they don't sign it, say, I want this in the record, but this is what I wanted to agree to. Um, A third thing is, you know, make sure when you are receiving things that you're actually reading them, actually read the contracts and the things they give to you, which is hard. And in labor, right, when we're in an extremely vulnerable position, doing something incredibly, you know, sacred, and I think, very strenuous on our bodies. That that's why it's really important. It it may be incredibly difficult for you to be able to like sit down and read those things. So I think planning ahead and kind of getting hospital policies ahead of time, getting some of these paper requesting paperwork ahead of time, or having someone who you know with you who can advocate, who can really read for you, who's totally on board with your plan. I know that's harder for some people than others. You know, some some people don't always have that good system. There are you know, facilities in place. Of course, there are doulas and other things, people you can contact if you don't have that support to try to bring support with you. So, you know, actually read what they say. And a lot of people don't know this trick, but it it's a real trick, kind of like we were talking about um, contracts before. It's a real thing you can do is when they give you that form, whatever it is, a waiver or, you know, um, acceptance of something, you have the ability, that's a contract, that's a working contract. You have the ability to cross out things and to write on top of it. And every time you do that, when you cross out and you write on top, initial, 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 and then you can sign at the bottom. Again, when you give it back to the hospital, 
they may not accept the term, the new terms that you're putting down. They may not accept that. So that's something then you have to go back and say, you know, well, am I still willing to birth here? Am I still, you know, am I willing to abide by these things? And just make note, if if you do decide, hey, it's an emergency, I need to just do this, just make note that, you know, you tried to put in new terms, you tried to protest, um, you feel like you're under duress or like, you you know, you feel this is an emergency and you have no choice. Just make sure you document those things or whoever's with you is documenting that later, just in case. Um but, you know, by doing that, you let the hospital know, hey, I'm serious about my choices. You know, I'm serious about this. And it kind of puts them on notice, like, hey, if there's medical malpractice, I'm here to do something about it, right? Which means they're going to pay better attention to you and what you want. And, you know, another option is always to say, let's say if there's something you don't want. So like an episiotomy, because who wants an episiotomy? That's the worst thing ever. But, you know, let's say you, you're like, I, no matter what, I do not want an episiotomy, right? And you have someone say, you have, quote unquote, you have to, you have to get one, um, you know, and, and they're telling you, you have to, you have to, you, you can say, you know, well, you know, that, because they will say something like, per the standard of care or per my, what I have to do for you, you have to have an episiotomy and you can say, well, I will, you know, sign a waiver. I will write a waiver or sign a waiver that says I will not hold you responsible as long as you don't give me this episiotomy, right? I I'll take the consequences of, you know, choosing to birth breach. Let's say you want a birth breach. I'll take the consequences of choosing to birth breach because that is my preference. I want to birth vaginally. I don't want a C-section. I want a birth breach and I don't want to have an episiotomy. And so you can say, you know, I'm willing to waive this again. You're going to have to work with the hospital, but if you're willing to sign a waiver for that, they will be more willing to do those things for you. Um, so but hopefully, if you don't want a hospital birth, you're not in that situation. But I do think, you know, taking these precautions and taking time to get to know your hospitals, you know, have your your plans in place or just know your rights that, you know, it's all everything is a contract, right? Everything is a contract. You can say yes. You can say no. You can fire people if you want to. So um, we'll help. Those are some tips to keep you protected in a hospital situation. Wow, that's such good advice. Oh, my goodness. And you talk about that episiotomy thing. <laughs> I know a gal who had an episiotomy. And I think it, I don't remember which pregnancy it was for her. But she, um, after the baby was born, a few days later, she started getting sick. She ended up running a fever of 102 for like, several, I don't know, a couple, three days. And then she was just standing at the sink doing dishes at fever of 102 and several little kids. Her episiotomy burst. Here it had been, it was infected. So she went to the doctor and the doctor, the doctor that was on call told her what had happened. And anyway, so she was so upset because the only way he told her the only way to fix this is to go back into surgery. And, and again, you're going to run the risk of more infection and so on and so forth. So the best thing is to do is just let it heal from the inside out. They couldn't even restitch it or anything after two weeks. So anyway, later down the road, um, she ended up getting her medical records because she changed hospitals. And the doctor that was on call the day she went in for that burst of episiotomy, he didn't even sign her records that day. 
the delivery doctor did, and he wrote in there that after extensive leg stretching, the episiotomy ripped out. And that's the kind of stuff that you, I, you know, I've heard people talk about in medical records, and it's, it's absolutely bizarre, the things that they write in there to protect themselves. So yes, for like you said, I had a young mother not too long ago that had a baby early, um, like two days before legal, um, legally she could deliver at home. <clears throat> the midwife sent her to the hospital. Anyway, um, and they, for five days, everything was perfect. Lungs were perfect. Um, sugar, glucose was perfect. They, they did the PKU. They did whatever. I can't remember the other stuff they did. But anyway, for five days, they kept running more and more blood tests. Let's keep checking the glucose. Let's keep checking, you know, oxygen, everything. And it was always come back perfect. At 1.30 in the morning, they came into the mother's room. The dad was sleeping on the sofa. They came into the mother's room and told her that they wanted to um, put a tube down the baby's um, stomach. And she's like, why? What's the matter? Uh, oh, they just want to check his gastric juices. And she said, uh, no, absolutely not. Here, this kid's five weeks early. No, he's doing fine. No, no, no. We want, we want to check. They ended up bringing in the doctor. The doctor harassed her for over half an hour. She finally got her husband to wake up, who was absolutely exhausted. And he, like they said, no, you're not doing this. And they said, you're not going to put our baby in this kind of stress. And they had no medical reason for wanting to do that. None. The, the, and the parents did refuse it, but, at, but not without, you know, much duress. It was terrible. And I, when they told me about it, I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, thank goodness they had enough moxie to say no to that. They just wanted to test the gastric juices at 1.30 in the morning. She goes, this baby's taking bottles and supplements according to whatever you ask, you know, until her milk came in. They wanted to have more and more and more. Oh, it was just like so frustrating. But in a situation like that, like I said, they could have been taking pictures or recording that conversation. That would have been an excellent idea because who's going to believe it? You know, it's just one of those things. Um, so anyway, well, I think that's a, an incredibly good point um, as well, you know, is always request your medical records, right? Always request. And it is known this is something that happens in the industry quite often that, you know, nurses or whoever the doctor will go back into the medical records later and change them. That does happen. And or, you know, they forget to record things. So they all get together on like a Thursday and they go in and and, you know, record from memory. And um, so things like that really do happen. And so that's why in recording and requesting your medical records often is so important. If you if you're in an emergent, especially if you're in an emergent situation or something like that happens, it's very, very important because later, you know, and because one, again, it puts them on notice, right? And it's going to make them more likely to, you know, want to comply with what you have to say because they don't have any feet to stand on because, you know, they're more likely to, you know, get get sued or be held responsible, you know, and and two, it just allows you if something does happen, you know, you have that evidence, you have that with you and, and hopefully not too many people are in this situation, but things like you described are very common. And that is really sad to say, but I mean, I think this really goes back to even the history of medicine. I didn't think I was going to do a dive into this, but if you're interested, <laughs> I, um, you know, there, there are a lot of good books out there about this, but, you know, even if we look back to the 1700s, you know, you would think during the 1700s, oh, you know, babies must have been dying left and right. They must have. 
but that just wasn't actually the case. And like some babies were dying because, you know, we had a lot more nutritional deficiency at that time, uh, especially in America. And we're kind of going through this revolution. uh, And we had things like rickets, which we don't have now, which is an actual malformation of the pelvis. But, uh, you know, if you look at the actual stats, babies really weren't dying that much. And part of that was because they had midwives, right? You had local midwives who come, came in and they would wrap clean linens around the mother. They knew to keep things sterile. And then when we get to the late 1700s and the early 1800s, where the doctor's guilds really come in, and, you know, these men come into the system and these, because, because before, you know, the midwife was the midwife. She was the keeper of birth. And then you had a surgeon only in very emergent um, cases who would try to do something like a C-section, right? Which was very dangerous, obviously, back then. And so not very many people opted for that. And then, you know, in the 1800s, things change. And these doctors guilds, they really try to get rid of midwifery and, you know, stamp on it and say, there are even papers that these doctors write that say, well, thank heaven that men have come into women's life and that they have come to deliver these babies. And that's where the word deliver comes. So when we say someone's delivered, that that context, that phrase of delivering a baby actually comes from that paper in the 1800s of this doctor saying, thank goodness we've come to deliver women, to deliver, to save all these babies from these negligent midwives. Well, what actually happened was, you know, that this is when they start trying to pull out babies by their heads and they're wearing bloody aprons and all the rest of it. And what happens to the mortality rate of babies, it drops like crazy, you know, I mean, it rises, (laughs) meaning like babies just start dying like crazy. And that's where we get this notion that you know, oh, home birth is dangerous or birth way back when was dangerous. Everybody was dying. Well, it comes from these doctor guilds coming into this space of of birth. So I just think that's a really interesting and we still have a lot of those to tie it back to this. When doctors came in, they started writing a lot of papers about, you know, forcing, having to force patients to do things and the way that you do that and how you, you are supposed to Um, isolate the woman away from her husband and so that she feels more intimidated and that you're supposed to, you know, tell the husband his wife will die unless this and it's really terrible when you look back at these papers, but we still see this coercion in medicine today. We still see these thoughts today. We still use forceps today because of this early medical view about home birth. And I think that applies, you know, this is also the time, right? Homeopathy also it starts to get smeared too. And, and it's really, we can see this in history and how it still plays out in people's attitudes now. Oh my goodness. That's also interesting. (laughs) I can remember when I first started delivering babies in the hospital, they used to have to wheel you into the delivery room and all the horrible things they did to us. It was my first, by the time I got to my third baby, they were no longer taking us into the delivery room, but they still did horrific things to us. And I can remember asking my mom, who, who, who says we have to do these things? Cause I didn't know we could even deliver at home at that time. That was, you know, like say 43 years ago. And I, I didn't even know we could have delivered at home, but I says, I, I think that some doctor that hates women come up with all these things that they make us do. So you just, you just proved me right. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. 
So it, thank goodness now we know about midwives and and, and um, home deliveries and not that you know hospitals are great are great for situations that a woman can't deliver at home. You know we've I've had a couple of situations in my very recent past here that um, two women had to be rushed in for C sections and they did have um, healthy babies and they're doing fine now. But you know we just you just never know. So we have, I know we have a lot of members that will go to a doctor for a diagnosis. And I, I think the biggest fear is they'll mention homeopathy and get chastised for using natural bunk, you know, and, and, um, and even if you have somebody so vindictive to call CPS on you, and that's another thing is well child visits. If they don't go to the assigned well child visits, will CPS come to my door kind of fear, so I'm not sure if you have any suggestions on um, navigating that system um, for parents. Um, and then we can probably dive into what to do if for any reason CPS comes. Yeah, I think this is a really huge one, right? Because these are things that are really scary. You know, if CPS gets called on you, it's scary. It's this government agency at your house and they have this power that they could take your children and, uh, and a lot of us feel powerless, right? And many people, we follow the system, we go to these appointments, we do these things because, you know, there's, there's a carrot and a stick and the stick is that CPS might come to your home and take your kids and, you know, we've heard all the horror stories of this happening to other people for reasons that seem so innocuous to us. Um, so as far as, you know, well child visits, do you have to go? There are a couple different, um, I would say, lines of thought on this. And I will just be completely honest about my my own situation. I, I don't take my kids to well child visits. I don't do it. I, um, I know how to take care of my kids. I know, you know, I take them to other practitioners. I take them to a chiropractor. I take them to maybe a naturopath if, if there's something I can't handle. But I haven't come up with anything that I haven't been able to handle, but you know, there may be occasions if a kid gets a broken arm or something like that, that you might have to, or, you know, there, unfortunately, sometimes kids are born with issues like hernias and things like that. And so that can be really difficult. And, you know, some people, one line of thought is, you know, you should go to well child visits because you need documentation and you want a record and you want CPS to know that you're like good at caring for your children. And that's a line of thought. I think there's, there is, um, there's validity to that. And there's validity in, in keeping those records. Another line of thought, you know, is if there is no record, there's nothing that they can make look bad about you, right? There's nothing that they can um, point to to say you were negligent in, in doing this or that for your children or not doing this and that. And so, you know, every person has to make that balance. And I know some people say, you know, well, I started taking them to a doctor, so I have to continue. Not necessarily, right? There are other ways you can make a record that you are a good caregiver, taking them to alternative practitioners, um, you know, photos and notes about them and how well they're doing. And, you know, there's lots of other ways to show that you're a good parent. So that's something first to just take in, in, into account when we're talking about this. Um, something else 
is to think about, you know, some, so, and this is where things get like very mushy, right? Like when we mix the medical sphere with the law, things get really, really um, difficult and complicated. And, you know, you may have, let's say I just had a woman who a couple weeks ago who was asking me for help because she, you know, her, her daughter had a hernia and her daughter wasn't gaining weight and, you know, to be able to do the operation and the doctor told her, you know, she doesn't gain weight. I'm going to, I have to keep checking up on her. And if you don't bring her back, I'm going to call CPS on you because she's not gaining weight. And, you know, of course the doctor said, I have to, that's what I, I, I think you're a good mother, but I have to do that because, you know, I have this duty. I have a legal duty to do that. And it is true that doctors and nurses, for some, there are some things that they have a legal duty to report, like if they found drugs in a baby's system or, you know, if there was bruising, unexplained bruising and things like that, they might have to report you. Sometimes no weight gain or failure to thrive might be one of those, depending on your state. It's very state specific. But, um, you know, always remember, I mean, one thing to think about is you can always transfer care, right? If you have a doctor that you don't feel aligned with, and I know that's hard. I know in rural areas that can be difficult. If you feel like there are no functional medicine doctors around you, that can be really difficult. There are ways to search for me functional medicine doctors. There is more options for telehealth visits these days for people who are functional medicine doctors. So just remembering that you have options for telehealth. You have, even if you don't have anyone who lives close to you, you have every right as a parent to transfer care. And you can tell, you know, a doctor who is being very pushy towards you, you know, of course, record the behavior and things like that. But you can tell them, hey, I'm going to transfer care. This is where I'm going. This is the hospital I'm transferring care to. I have that right as parent. And that's what I'm going to do. And if you do that, they're much less likely to call CPS on you because they know where you're going. They know. And you can even have that doctor's office communicate with your doc, your current doctor's office so that they know, hey, this is legit. They are transferring care. You know, they have this appointment. You can show them that it's set up. So that's another way. Like if you're not getting along with your doctor, if your doctor doesn't like your choices, remember, you can transfer care and that telehealth is an option. The other thing that if if it does happen, let's say they call CPS on you, and this is uh, what did happen to this woman. They did call CPS on her. And, you know, one thing is first, you know, don't don't let the fear get you right. We don't ever want to act out of a place of fear. You know, we don't want to be afraid of that. Uh, we want to know what can CPS do? What can't they do? What are my rights, right? And so some big things is, you know, one, CPS can't just come and take your kid away all of a sudden, you know, and if they do, then you have retaliation, right? So you can go and you can sue them. You can sue the state. You can, you know, make a fuss about this. And obviously it's not ideal, but there are things you can do. But CPS can only take a child if there is actual danger present. So that means not the possibility of danger, which like a phone call from a doctor would be a possibility of danger, not proof of danger or real evidence of danger. So, um, you know, you can always bring that up, 
that, you know, that there is no danger here, you know, the doc for this child, um, I wouldn't bring it up right away, but that's something if you do need to retaliate, if something crazy happens, just remember they cannot take your, just come in and take your child for no reason. There has to be real true evidence. Number two, you know, CPS is allowed to show up at your residence at any time. They can do that. They can come up, they can come unexpectedly for a home visit, but upon request, they must leave and give you time to get a lawyer. So if they come to your door and you feel unprepared, you feel scared, you can say, hey, I'm going to exercise my right to a lawyer and I, I need you to come back when I'm ready. I need time to review my rights and I need time to get a lawyer. That is totally your right. They have to leave if you say that. So that's something else to remember. Three is CPS is never allowed to search your house. In fact, they are never allowed to come in if you do not grant them that right, unless they have a warrant, unless they have an actual court order, they cannot come in your house. And so if they ask to come in, you can very politely say, uh, you know, at this time, I don't feel comfortable with you coming in my house. I'd rather just have this chat on the doorstep right now. Um, you know, I'm kind of in a rush. Things are in a flurry and uh, I'm going to need some time to process. But, you know, I'll chat, chat with you on my doorstep. And there's a way to do it. You know, it's all about how you do it. There's a way to do it. That's kind. That's comfortable. That's why I'm saying step one is don't let the fear get to you, because if you act like more of a normal person rather than a scared person, there's less suspicion on you. And, you know, they're more likely to feel like, oh, they're just they're being compliant. They're just, you know, in a, in they're just busy or they they just have things to do. So that's another thing to remember. They can never search your house. So if they search your house then, you know, that's something you can sue them over and they can never come in without your consent. Um, a third thing is when they do come to your house, if they ask to talk to a child privately, they can all, you can always deny them that they don't have a right to talk to your child privately at your home. But something you should know is that they do, CPS does have a right to talk to your children without your knowledge. And that's scary for people to know. But usually this happens in uh, schools when kids go to public school, it happens at schools or it happens like at a hospital, they can talk to your children. And, and usually something like this would be, let's say little Johnny shows up with bruising, goes to the school nurse, you know, continues to have bruising, the school nurse calls CPS, CPS comes and meets with Johnny at the school and usually will come meet with them several times before they ever come to your door. That's the way something like that usually works. Um, it is unlikely that CPS would be able to talk to your children, you know, outside of a situation like that, you know, at a hospital or somewhere else, especially if you are homeschooling. So, but the way to uh, kind of kibosh that is if you do send your child with a letter to the school um, or have a letter on them that you and in the letter you say, I don't want my child to be talked to by any adult without my direct consent and without my presence, and you sign it, then they, they cannot um, talk to your child without your knowledge if your child has a note like that. So that's something, if you do take your kids to public school, and you're worried because you use homeopathy, you know, maybe they are biased against you, 
then that's something that you might take with you to protect your rights and to keep them from talking to your child without your consent. So, so the, some of those are some of the things that CPS can and can't do. And I think when we have that knowledge, it makes you feel a little safer and a little less scared. I will say just um, to put meat on this, like I've had CPS show up at my door. That's happened to me before. And it happened for, you know, I, I, what I would call an incredibly silly reason. I was watching my sister's kids and my kids. And, you know, of course, one of the kids has a tantrum, starts crying, needs a diaper change. I go to change the diaper. Um, I come back. I'm like, where's Jenny? You know, where's my where's my niece? Where'd she go? And we look in the house because she likes to play like hide and seek. We're looking around the house. She's not there. Well, she'd run out the back door and she'd run down the street. You know, it's a very little kid thing to do. You know, she's three years old and my neighbors had seen her and called 911 because they saw her, you know, and 911 came. And then later, you know, they asked me all these questions. And then later CPS came to my door. And most of the time, I mean, it depends on where you live, but I would say, you know, most people who work for CPS, they're not just trying to take your kid away. You know, they're not just trying because the goal of CPS really is supposed to be keeping families together. And, you know, many people who are in the foster, trying to adopt foster kids can tell you sometimes even to a detriment that are trying to keep families together a lot of times. And so, you know, when she came, I felt, I felt like she was totally reasonable. We chatted and she was like, yeah, it happens all the time. Kids, little kids run down the street. That happens, you know, and that was that. And it's a little bit different than having a doctor make a report about you, obviously. But I think just putting that into perspective that if you treat them like people and if you're kind and if you just show them, hey, I'm a normal person just like you, it's not something that we need to be overly afraid of. We did cover a lot so far. We didn't really talk about um, vaccine mandates and exemptions. I know it's different from state to state. I think that's the only thing we haven't covered so far for people, um, especially with what happened with COVID and the mandates for people to get vaccinated um, or lose their job or their kid had to get vaccinated to go to school or anything like that. So I'm not sure if there's any kind of form or document exemption documentation um, that can be requested that would, would be helpful or any tips with that in that situation. Of course. Um, you know, there are, uh, I had the great opportunity to work for Siri and Glimstad, which I don't know if you, I, I think most people have heard of Aaron Siri by now. He works with the High Wires team. I don't know if you, you know, the High Wires. So um, he's their, their lawyer and um, he's a great lawyer. And I, I've been a law clerk for them and a legal researcher for them for uh, almost three years now. And they do a lot of this work. So there are a lot of, you know, um, attorneys out there who are helpful. As you said, it does vary state by state. But most states, you know, have exemptions. Just know that there's always has to be at least in a medical exemption available. Of course, California, you know, very it is very difficult. They've had a lot of their rights taken away. Um, and of course, the issue with the religious exemption, which now, you know, a lot of people are fighting. We um, 
are fighting to get back religious exemption, at least religious exemptions um, in the five states that don't have them. And recently there has been a win in Mississippi. Um, and I, I personally know that we are very close and working hard in West Virginia as well. So, um, that, you know, this is something where there is now getting to be this greater awareness and there is no, there is like a growing respect for exemptions now. And that's one of the, you know, if there were any pros to COVID, that was a, a pro that now people are more aware and, and that people are now demanding exemptions, right? They, they are saying, this is my right to have an exemption. So there will be exemptions available. Usually it is as easy as just a, you know, typing into your search engine, you know, vaccine exemption for this state. Some states are as easy as you just put your name, you know, I want a religious exemption um, and you put your name on the list and you get it. Other places you have to write a letter. I am working currently right now on a PDF that will have all the resources for vaccine exemptions available to people. Um, but I will say, if you go to Syrian Glimstad, if you look at them up, they have a whole page of resources for vaccine exemptions. And they do have a webinar where you can go in and you know um, learn about writing your own exemption. Obviously, you can get lawyerly help from them or from others, but you can do it yourself. There are plenty of examples online, and that's why I'm putting together this PDF, which will be free for people to get and, and use to help them. I'm sure there are others out there who have it, but something to think about is when you're writing these, most of the time it's going to be in the context of a religious exemption. So that's number one. Number two is you do not have to have uh, let's say that you belong to a specific type of church, maybe something like the Catholic church. Let's say you're Catholic. Many people are like, well, don't I have to have my priest or whoever it is? Maybe you're Jewish, a rabbi sign off on this. No, you do not. You know, it is about your religious con uh, convictions. And I do know, you know, some places like the army was very strict and they would be like, well, the Catholic church says this is okay. Therefore, you know, we're not going to accept. And so, you know, think about that, that this is when you frame your letter, framing it in that this is my personal religious belief and more framing it as, you know, maybe you say I'm a Christian, you know, maybe I'm a Christian or you can say I am Jewish and part of our culture, you know, we believe that God created our bodies perfectly and, you know, we shouldn't mess with our immune system. So just I think framing it more in a personal way that this is my personal religious conviction rather than framing it as like, I am a staunch Catholic. Um, and just remembering that, especially if you do it that way, a bishop or whoever does not have to sign off on your uh, statement to make it valid. Right. And it doesn't matter if you belong. I know um, many members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints usually called Mormon, right? They, their church, a lot of people um, felt very opposed to getting the vaccine and vaccines in general. Um, but their church in general came out and said, you know, we support this generally, but it's up to each individual. And, and um, because of that, 
you know, a lot of people were like, well, now I can't get a religious exemption because, you know, the prophet said it's okay. Well, that's not true. Again, it's your personal conviction, right? It's your personal religious conviction. And you can talk about your own revelation. You know, this is the revelation I've received. This is how I believe because you you don't have to belong to a specific creed to have religious rights and beliefs. So I think those are what I touch on with that. That's really interesting. Yes, that is. That's very interesting. This was so good. I think no kidding. it was just so fantastic. Um, we are going to have Julie come to the members corner and do a live Q and a for our members. So if you're interested in doing that, come to the website, uh, you're welcome to come and join us. And I will, after this recording's over, I'll do an announcement of when the date and time of that's going to be. Um, and uh, definitely Julie, why don't you talk about where people can find you online? Yeah, of course. Uh, the best place to find me is on Instagram, and it's just crunchy.legal.lady. And I there you can send me, you know, a direct message. I read all of those. You can also go to sovereignpma.com, and I have my email listed there, and you can send me an email. I'm currently working on ways to protect uh, alternative health providers better. And so you can kind of find out a little bit more there, but really the best place right now to reach me is on Instagram. Yes, definitely. Just following you there. There's lots of great posts there with lots of good information. So I highly recommend that. That's great. Well, Julie, I appreciate it too. It's just like, you know, we, we talk about this sort of, um, situation on our Q and A's all the time, but We've never really talked to anyone that's a professional. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> really appreciate it. And I look forward to the to you being on a live Q&A with our members. That's that's great. They, they'll appreciate that too. Well, thanks for having me here. I really appreciate it so much. And it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. You're so sweet. Thank you. <laughs> May God bless you and yours. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Julie, the crunchy legal lady. We're excited to have Julie join us for a live Q&A on January 25th at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time inside Sue's Members Corner. If you'd like to join to participate in the live Q&A with Julie and ask your questions, you can do that at members.homeopathyformommies.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Homeopathy for Mommies radio show. Please visit Sue on her website, homeopathyformommies.com, and join us right here at homeopathyformommiesradio.com, Wednesday, noon Eastern. As always, we pray the Lord blesses you with good health, vitality, strength, and wisdom.